Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Trinity, for your warm welcome. It's a, it's a pleasure to be back here again. Um, the last time I was here, actually, was for uh, Andrew's institution. And what he doesn't know is that just this week, I was also at his old church for the institution of Charles Trefusis as the new vicar there, and they send you their love and best wishes, uh, Andrew. Um, a hard man to follow there, I think, actually, but we pray for that church. And before that, and this is the last time that some of you may have seen me, although there'll probably be quite a few newcomers since those days, was towards the end of 2015 when I was here. And of course, it was under slightly different circumstances. Mark and Karen were still here, and I, I still want to honor them for the amazing work they did and our relationship in New Wine with Trinity over the years under their leadership, which means that for many of you, you've been able to walk in to a church that's already vibrant and moving in the power of the Spirit and experience the type of worship that we've just experienced. You know, I, uh, um, prior to that, uh, you know, it was Jules Woodbridge leading worship, and, and, uh, and prior to that, it was um, Neil Bennett's. You can tell I'm 67 and I forget names every now and again. And it's, it's always been a joy, as it was just now, to be embraced by the Lord himself in worship together. Now, as I was praying, I was just thinking about, you know, the, the history of um, our time in relationship in between New Wine and, and Trinity. And uh, I want to say, I think, what, what I saw was in my mind's eye a river that was flowing, and it was flowing fast, and then suddenly it went over a waterfall, and you know, after a waterfall, it's all turbulent white water. And in the, into that white water, then a tributary came. It was also flowing fast. And the white water continued as white water for longer than people might have thought that the white water would last after a waterfall. And I think in some ways that's what been what's happened in the last couple of years in Trinity's life, that something happened beyond anybody's expectations and control, and then in the turbulence time, after a while, a new vicar comes. <laughs> and it's just a year on now from that, and it takes time for the turbulent time to dissipate. But as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the river that flows from the temple of God in Ezekiel. And the thing about the river is it says that the river keeps flowing. And that the river always, as water does, always flows downhill. And the thing about that river flowing downhill from the temple in Jerusalem was it was flowing towards the desert. And it was bringing life to the desert. And I just have a feeling that the river is still flowing, and wherever the river flows, it says, it brings life. And so I was very interested that uh, when Andrew told me that last week was the Vision Sunday for the church, and what a great vision it is, positioning ourselves before God, partnering to serve and planting for life, that actually part of that is the possibility of starting new mission centers. Wherever the river flows, it will bring life. And as a church, I want to commend that vision still to you, that you are going to go on flowing in the stream of the Spirit's life and power. And wherever you go, you will take life. And what is amazing is that that uh, uh, river flows into the sea. And it says when it flows into the sea, the salt water becomes fresh. Now, have you ever heard of that? And when, the, when, when the, the, a river flows into the sea, normally what happens is that the river, as it flows into the sea, becomes salty. 
the real miracle of the work of God is that the fresh water of the life of God flows into places and into people who are actually dead. And what was dead comes to life. The salty water becomes fresh. So I'm saying, Trinity, keep flowing. And it's been an absolute pleasure uh, seeing what God has done over the years here. And it's such a pleasure to see you still pursuing the heart of God in worship. And it's such a, a, a joy to me to think of continuing to be in uh, there to be a continuing relationship between uh, Trinity and New Wine. And I want to say well done to all of you for sticking together, praying together, and continuing to allow the Holy Spirit lead you on. Now I'll go. <laughs> oh dear. Um, and Rachel, thank you for your testimony just now. I'm meant to be speaking, and I might speak a bit about this in a moment. No, I will, although I'm obviously not going to get through my however many slides it is I've given you, Amy. Um, uh, that's, that's the first year I prayed for nothing except a closer relationship with God. Friends, if you want a personal vision for your life, she has said it. As I'm meant to be speaking about developing a personal vision for your life, she said it. Because if each and every one of us develops, uh, prays consistently for, pursues a closer relationship with God, then everything else falls into place. The difficulty is for us most of the time is that other things take priority over that, which is why there's such discord in our life. Because the one that created us to be the center of our life is not at the center of our life. Now, some of you will remember the old 78 RPM records, vinyl discs. Uh, there was, for a moment, a little sort of resurrection of uh, interest in vinyl records, but it was a passing fad a couple of years ago, I think. But how come on, how many of you remember vinyl records? Okay. And the thing about any record with a needle going round it to play something is that the, the, the hole has to be absolutely central. If it were not absolutely central, as the needle tracks the, re the vinyl, it would be completely discordant. And for most of people in life, that is what happens. The one that created to us to, for him to be the center of our life is not the center of our life, which is why our lives are discordant. And we know it, and everybody knows it. It's only when he is the center of our life that it all falls into place, and our lives become the beautiful lives that God intended them to be. Now here we are, we're in a post-Easter period, so I'm going to start with an Easter picture, an empty tomb. And I want to start with the empty tomb because the resurrection redefines reality for us. The impossible becomes possible. And as I talk about developing vision for your life, I want to suggest that for many of you here, there is actually already something in your life about which God has spoken, which is a vision for your life, but for one reason or another, it's locked in a tomb. And God wants to resurrect it. So a number of years ago, back in the early 90s, a visitor to our church, a vineyard pastor who came a few times, said, um, I want to... Uh, after he'd given his teaching that day, he said, I, I just want to ask people um, who feel that there may be a dream in their life that is as yet unfulfilled to come to the front. It may be some of you know what that dream is. It may be that some of you don't even know what that dream is, but you think if there was a dream, you'd like to know what the dream was. And so 
why don't you come forward as well? And I'm going to pray over you that God will resurrect those dreams. So I thought, well, it sounds like a dream would be a good thing. I'll, I'll go forward. And um, so he prayed over us all that God would resurrect any buried dreams. And amazing, uh, to my amazement, into my mind immediately came the, the memory of the day that I felt the Lord might be calling me into the Anglican ministry. So we were dry, I was being driven by a clergyman who, whom I'd accompanied on a ministry trip. And we were driving down the motorway. And as we were driving, we were talking about whether or not I was going to end up being an engineer because it was for engineering that I was being trained at university. Or whether I might think about, seriously, about becoming ordained. And we, I, we, I kept seeing the spires and the uh, towers of the churches that you can see from any motorway in England as you look at the villages, which uh, you know, they tended to be built in the highest spots. So it's all evident all over the country. And I began to think as we were talking, what would happen to England if in every one of these churches there was a Bible-based Christian leader bringing people to faith in Jesus? I thought the nation would be changed. And then suddenly I felt the, the Lord impressing upon me that if that was to be the case, at least I had to volunteer to be one of those people. Uh, so I volunteered. Uh, the Church of England was foolish enough to accept me as one of those people. But that was the way I got called into the ministry. And this day at the front of our church, suddenly the Lord resurrected that dream. I hadn't thought about it for years. This was probably 20 years after uh, the event. And um, within two weeks of the resurrection of that dream, uh, David Pitches got in touch with me from Chorleywood to ask me whether I would help him with some of the ch church leadership retreats that they were doing for people around the country who were interested in bringing change to their churches and in, that they'd become engaged in mission in the power of the Spirit. And the significance of the vision that God had originally given me of churches all over the nation being transformed to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring change to the nation suddenly became real to me as David was asking me not just to be the vicar of a local church but just through relationship and speaking at one or two of his retreats to introduce other people to the possibility of incredible change that God wanted to bring. And as we did that, more and more, um, it was apparent that not only was I, as it were, had a dream that had been locked up in the tomb of my mind, but it's resurrected and there was new life in it, but church leaders all around the country were being breathed new life by God, new hope into their ministry and new power into their ministry through the Holy Spirit. So the, 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 the tomb is not a tomb for eternity. The fact that the tomb is empty means that there's always hope beyond the darkness, light beyond the darkness, hope beyond the despair, resurrection for the buried dream. So, Father, I pray that today, and if you want this, then you say, yes, Lord, I want this. I pray that today, in this place, you resurrect buried dreams. Visions that you've given for individuals' lives in the past that for one reason or another have got buried and forgotten. Father, I pray even now, by your Spirit, you would resurrect those dreams. May they become clearer in vision than they even were when you first gave them. 
may things that you've done between now and then, or then and now, actually have a greater perspective on significance towards the fulfillment of that dream and vision that you originally gave. Oh God, what the enemy's stolen, I pray that you will restore. What the enemy's buried, I pray that you would uncover. I pray that there'd be new life, where at the moment it just seems like a grave. I'm just going to wait for a minute or two. By your Spirit, who alone gives life, given you life, I pray, O oh Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Now, at the end, uh, when I finish speaking, um, there will be an opportunity, obviously, for people to come forward for further ministry. And it may be that if that's something that God has already begun to speak to you about and bring something back to your memory or in your heart, then you might like to come forward and share that and pray about that with others before you leave church today. Um, I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2 um, and then say a few words about this um, uh, in, in, uh, idea of um, developing vision uh, for your life. Um, it won't be a strict exegesis of uh, Ephesians chapter 2, but I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation and then draw your attention to some of the verses that I read. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good works or good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Friends, uh, once you were dead, let's go back to uh, slide two if we may, uh, because of your disobedience and your many sins, but God is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much, he gave us life. Now, most of the time we forget after a while of being Christians that once we were literally dead and useless. But he's given us 
life. Now, the life that we live is meant to be the vibrant life that God has given us. And it's a life that he says always three cheers for. So it says there that he, uh, he, God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. So um, uh, we began the service with a song about a billion years. And if you slip on to slide five, what that means is that when all the suns and nebulae have passed away, each one of us in Christ will still be alive. And the Father in heaven will still be pointing to you, just as he points to you now, and saying, three cheers. I am absolutely thrilled with this one who I've given life to, who once was dead but is now alive. This one, John. This one, um, Andrew. This one, Zoe. This one, I forget your name, dear brother or sister. This one is an example of my love and my kindness. Now that's a vision for your life. That you should live as one who's a constant example of the love and kindness of God for you and for humanity. And, you know, it's really interesting when you're asked to preach and you have to live the sermon rather than just preach the sermon. So I've, as I've been preparing, I've been thinking, Lord, what is the vision for my life? Um, just yesterday we bumped into Gareth at a, at a wedding in, in Soul Survivor, Watford. And um, at the wedding, one of the people that used to be part of St. Barnabas, you know, St. Barnabas uh, 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 is in North London, and she then moved to Watford and was part of Soul Survivor. She said, so, so John, what, what's, what's, what's happening in your life now, right now? Um, what are you doing right now to, um, to serve the Lord? And I was, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what is the vision for my life right now? Uh, am I... Do I have a short-term, mid-term, long-term vision for what, what God himself is calling me to be or to focus on? It's not a question that you can answer once for the rest of your life. Although there may be parts of it that are consistent all the way through your life, that there will be renewed and re uh, given afresh new visions for aspects of your life. But the thought that for eternity long I'm meant to be an example of the kindness of God is one of those abiding aspects, permanent aspects of a vision for my life. So will my neighbor be able to say about me, this man was an example of the kindness of God? Will my work colleague be able to say that to me? One of the fun things I've just done recently is um, uh, I've joined the golf club. Uh, I've played golf periodically uh, over the years, um, but never had enough time to play or to justify joining a club because it's too expensive to, you know, it's much cheaper to pay and play. So anyway, I thought I, I was given a good deal. And uh, I'm, I'm a sucker, aren't I? <laughs> so uh, I've just joined the golf club. It's really, really fascinating going onto other people's turf as a, quotes retired Anglican clergyman. And the, the, the moment I, I, I'm in a conversation, you know, it frequently uh, 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 and quickly in the conversation becomes what you do, or are you retired? And I retired Anglican clergyman. I think I, I normally say that to get it out of the way fairly early on, at which point they, they say things, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to watch my conversation then, aren't I? So, something like that. But it's, uh, it's absolutely fascinating how quickly it leads people um, because I'm not trying to sell anything like come to church, 
I'm just in a conversation with them. It leads people to talk about what's really going on in their life. But here's, here's a question, you know, in two years' time, will people think of me as an example of the kindness of God? Or will they just think of me as a salesman for Jesus? Now, I'm caricaturing that phrase, but there is a difference, isn't there, sometimes between those two things. And it is amazing how many people even get bruised by church because actually the characteristic of the church is we want to, we'll recruit you to do something for us rather than the characteristic of the church is it's a church that generally is known to exhibit and display the kindness of God. I'm not saying that about Trinity, but I'm saying that because we in our little house church that I'm still involved in running in North London, we have quite a lot of people who come to us bruised and battered by church that somehow lost that primary motivation to be incarnate, the kindness of God. So on slide six, we had those three things. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can all do the things he planned for us long ago. Uh, you are God's masterpiece. Each of you individually. Think about a masterpiece. Most masterpieces are unique. And they're done by a true artist. So when we read this, you are God's masterpiece. You are unique. There's no mold that can be reused that will reproduce another you. And he is a true artist. There's something authentic about you, unique about you, vibrant about you, that it often takes the beholder to realize about you because you and I often don't realize that about ourselves. We don't think about ourselves as a masterpiece. We need somebody else to remind us that we're a masterpiece. And of course, the church is meant to be a people who encourage each other all the time. So when we're together, having been together, I believe that we ought to be able to impart a greater belief in our, each of us being a masterpiece of God. So today, if you leave church, will you think more or less of yourself as a result of your encounter with God? I believe that you will believe more of yourself because in Christ you are a masterpiece. Um, we are created anew. What that means is that it's only possible for us to become truly ourselves in Christ. We, we may be able to do many things and some will have... Um, uh, really identified what Rachel said when she said in her testimony a few minutes ago that uh, she was wrecking her life. She was trying to live it on her own and making a mess of it. Not everybody will be as honest as that about their life before coming to Christ. The truth is most of us were in that position, although we may not be honest about that position. But some people here may feel they'll be making quite a success out of their life even without a personal commitment to following Jesus. You may be. The thing is you will never, we will never become our true self until we're born anew in Christ. Because we cannot really reflect the true character of the greatest human being that's ever walked the face of the earth, Jesus Christ, until we're born again into him. 
and his spirit lives in us. Only then can we become the true representatives of the kindness of God as Jesus himself was a representative of the kindness of God. So uh, that's, that's about the character that he forms in us, which is his character being formed in, in us. And then so that we can do the things that he planned for us long ago. In other words, that you know, God has a, does have a real purpose for your life. There are certain things that he's created you to do, which he intends you to do, and which in relationship with him, in partnership with him, you will do if you focus on keeping close relationship with him throughout your life. And, and so here in this uh, verse, chapter, verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, we get those three things which become visions for our lives, that we recognize about ourselves that we are a masterpiece that God has designed us to be, that we become like Jesus himself, and then we begin to do the things that God planned for us to do. And I hope that each of us here is on that journey today. The thing is, we are so filled with doubt. Um, <laughs> it's interesting that on the golf course, uh, people ask the question, what do you do? It's not, who are you? The thing is, I can only really do things because of who I am. But most of us focus on the doing rather than the being. And that's uh, the sadness of our lives. This question of who am I to do what God has called me to do is also a question that Christians face. Because most of us really wonder about whether we're up to the task that God has called us to do. So that was Moses. When Moses was asked by God to lead the people of Israel, Moses protests the Lord and says, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And that's because we have this distorted image of ourselves. We don't understand who we really are as the bearers of the image of God. That's why we need each other to keep reminding each other that that is who we are. That's why we meet together frequently in order to encourage one another in Christ, that we are true masterpieces, image bearers. Who am I, therefore? And before I do what I do, I need to know that I am that child of God who's loved by my Heavenly Father unconditionally, wholeheartedly, and continually. So in recovering from my heart attack some years ago, and uh, some of you won't know that I had a heart attack which resulted in a cardiac arrest, and under the, the grace of God through uh, um, a dream, literally, that he'd given my wife on the one hand and the uh, sensitivity of my daughter on the other hand, and then the rapid response of the uh, NHS when we, they called upon them, uh, they got to me um, and, and, I, and, and used a defibrillator and I came back to life again and... Um, here I am today, 12, 11 years later, and it's been a fantastic extra 11 years. So, um, at night, I fought going to sleep. Probably because the last time I'd lost consciousness, it had come upon me out of the blue, and I was scared of something again. So I, I didn't really... And, and, I'd, and I'd sort of be lying there, and I, I couldn't really pray any articulate prayers. I don't know if I've ever been able to pray any articulate prayers, actually. But, you know, it, it, praying is more difficult when uh, you can't always complete your sentences. And w when you've lost blood supply to your brain for a while, actually, you, you, that's what happens. You forget words, and you can't put sentences together in quite the way that you could before. So I didn't really know how to pray. The prayer that I prayed or found myself praying continuously was, 
Father, I love you. Thank you that you love me. And at night, still now, when I'm not fighting sleep, but when I find myself awake, thinking about things in the way that I'm sure all of us do from time to time, when I revert to that prayer, Father, I love you. Thank you that you love me. I love you, Father. Thank you that you love me. Almost immediately I sense the presence of God and the peace of the Spirit coming upon me. So I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. And the simplest, most fundamental answer to the question, who am I? A child loved by God. Father, I love you. Thank you that you love me. I love you, Father. Thank you that you love me. And you're praying it now, I hope. And the peace of God comes. And that means that whatever the future holds, we know that someone holds the future who's now holding our hand and can walk with us into that future and whose plans for us in that future are far greater than any plans we might make for ourselves. And he knows what we're able to do and he will enable us to do it. Father, Thank you that you love me. I love you. Okay, you just open your eyes again if you've still got them closed. Just by in way of interest for me, how many of you who prayed that prayer felt the presence of God or the Spirit of God upon you in a fresh way? That's quite a few of you. I'd encourage you. It's not a mantra. It's not a trick. But if it comes from your heart, from your spirit, you will find, I believe, that the Spirit of God really does come to you and bring the peace of God to you. And once we know that, we become secure in ways that we would never otherwise be secure. We know that whatever God is calling us to, whatever the future holds, whatever his vision for our life is, it's something that is actually altogether good for us and we'll find ourselves in fulfillment in a way that we would not otherwise, not otherwise be able to do. Now, we're, we're, we're coming to land. Do you agree with this next slide I'm going to get show, which is number 17, please? Okay, I agree with my heading. <laughs> Comparison can kill us. I don't actually altogether agree with the quote, which is a quote from Theodore Roosevelt. 
Comparison is the thief of joy. It's what happens with the comparison that is the thief or not the thief. So under certain circumstances, I do believe that uh, comparison is the thief of joy or the joy that comes through becoming what we're meant to be. So Gideon, for instance, when he is uh, asked by the Lord to uh, lead Israel, says, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Judah, and I'm the least in my entire family. In other words, I can't possibly do what you're asking me to do, Lord. He compares himself with other people and basically says, there must be something better for that, someone better for that job than me, Lord. However, how many of you have ever felt like that? Whether it be in the church or whether it be in your secular employment, wherever it is that you think that you're being asked to do something and there must be somebody better than you to do that. I feel like that. Okay, so that sort of comparison kills the joy that comes from becoming the person that you're meant to be. I agree with that. On the other hand, look at this. This is slide 19 now. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, and as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. So they knew as they looked at Jesus that Jesus had something in relationship with the Father that they didn't have. And they thought, I would like that too, Lord. That comparison brought incredible purpose for the rest of their life. That's why it's so good being part of a great church in which the Spirit of God is at work, which has a vision beyond itself and the like of which Trinity has, and which is filled with people who understand that when you meet together, you encourage each other. You don't compare each other with each other. You don't only have people who are excellent at doing what they do in church. Excellence kills hope. Because most of us feel we could never be as good as that. We have to have, be like a family where we see people growing and maturing. We encourage trial. We, we stick with people through error. We see people growing in maturity. And we walk each other towards the goal to which we're going. That's my understanding anyway. It's in that sort of environment that people will thrive. We can dare not create an environment where people dare not try. And what they try in church, of course, is not the be-all and end-all of what God is calling them to in their life. It's an environment that we create, which is an environment that creates a culture of healthy self-understanding and growth in all our personal attributes on the one hand and skills on the other hand. But most of our attributes and skills will be visible outside of our church meetings to other people 24-7. It's in our neighborhood. It's in our street. It's in our golf club. It's in our workplace. That actually who we are and what we do really has incredible impact. We sang a song a few moments ago. Lead me in your love to those around me. What happens when we meet together is meant to be something that equips us, changes us, transforms us, enables us to take his love to those around us wherever we go. Uh, I know that you will, uh, because I've used this phrase myself in this place of church before, and I'm sure Mark will have done from time to time, David Pitcher's phrase, the meeting place is the training place for the marketplace. Who we learn that we are when we meet together. The gifts we see in each other that we in, either prophetically or through seeing what people are already doing, we so encourage and develop in each other. 
that we know that those gifts will bear fruit out there. That's who we are as the people of God. That's why it's so great to be part of a great church family. That's why, amongst other reasons, it says don't neglect meeting together, as some are doing, but continue to meet together to encourage one another in the Lord. Can you go to slide 28 with which we'll finish? Our life, your life, is a gift from God. Once you were dead, now you're alive. What you do with that life is now your gift back to God. Let it be the best it could possibly be. As he's given you the best of heaven, let your gift back to him be the best from earth. Shall we stand?